Hello, listeners. For this episode of the Conversation Podcast, our guest is Clovis Honoré, president of the San Diego branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. You've probably heard of it as the NAACP. Its mission is to fight for equality for minority citizens and against racial prejudice. I'm your host, Abby Hamblin. The San Diego branch of the NAACP is celebrating 100 years this year, and we wanted to get to know the man leading it in this era. Clovis is a San Diego State grad, we should mention, and we talked about his leadership locally and how the NAACP has maintained its relevance all these years. Here's my conversation with Clovis Honoré. So this year, as we said, the local chapter of the NAACP is celebrating 100 years. How does it feel to be 100? 100 years old is magnificent. First, I, I have the privilege of correcting some of the uh, misnomers about our branch. We are actually a branch as opposed to a chapter. And I only say that frequently to people because I was always corrected whenever I made that mistake by the national office and by members of the state NAACP. But it's fantastic. This has been a great year for the NAACP. Uh, we just celebrated our 100-year anniversary with our Freedom Fund Dinner Uh, just this past Friday. We were planning for 200 to 250 people and had nearly 500 people show up. It's quite a logistical nightmare, but the night turned out to be absolutely fantastic. That's great. So what would you say are some of the big accomplishments when you look back over 100 years? You know, what kind of stands out to tell people a little bit about what has been done here in San Diego? Well, interestingly, uh, for the 100-year celebration, we are able to say that we actually were joined by Mr. W.E.B. Du Bois himself in founding this chapter. He came out a number of times to help us get it going. Uh, We also had the support of James Weldon Johnson, who most people would know wrote the what we call the Negro or the Black National Anthem, who was working, uh, I think, as a general secretary for the NAACP back in that time. Since then, some of the most decorated and recognizable names in the African-American community have been presidents of the NAACP here in San Diego, like Jack Kimbrough, um, uh, the names escape me at the moment, uh, but they're, they're folks who know uh, Mr. Ragsdale, um, uh, our, I think, Superior Court judge right now is Randa Trapp, the Honorable Randa Trapp was former president, and a number of other folks who, who people would recognize uh, if they were familiar with the black community of San Diego, and these folks have done a lot of hard work. Jan Kimbrough is someone I got to know when I first came to San Diego. He was a supporter. He was a supporter of San Diego State University's Black Repertory total theatrical experience, which was a product of Dr. Danny Scarborough out of the, out of the Afri- African-American Studies Department at that time. I was a member of that dance troupe, and so I got to meet him, go to his house, uh, and hang out with him, a very, very esteemed gentleman. Uh, but he was also responsible for some of the most sophisticated uh, civil rights actions that took place in San Diego for desegregating um, hotels, desegregating lunch counters, uh, what we used to call soda, soda shops, soda fountain shops, and things of that nature. So it's been a great uh, 100 years in San Diego. Yeah, such a a storied history that we recently wrote about in the San Diego Union-Tribune. I'd encourage everyone to check that out, but also your website has a lot of that. Um, As far as the national um, NAACP organization, what are some of the biggest issues today? Oh, my goodness. Um, Unfortunately, some of the biggest issues today are some of the biggest issues we had 100 and 110 years ago. So we're 100 years old. The national organization is 110 years old, founded in 1909. It was founded around the issue of lynching primarily. Uh, Of course, there were a lot of other issues going on at the time, but lynching was the thing that really brought it to the fore and that the organization organized around. Well, today we are seeing in the news that we have in Texas, uh, I think over the last year or two, six shootings 
of African Americans by police officers. Two storied shootings: the one where uh, the Af- white white police officer shoots an African American woman in her house, uh, and the other one where the white police officer shot uh, and killed an African American man in his apartment. And um, this is not too dissimilar as we see across the nation with with the Browns and the Trayvons, etc. Uh, the same thing that we were dealing with in terms of, and we see it very similarly to the thing we were dealing with in 1909 in terms of lynching that we see state sanctioned and and unaccounted for. And we're seeing a little more now, uh, more more so now than we have in the last five six years. Uh, very little accountability, even in the city of San Diego, or it says in the county of San Diego. We see what happened to Wilongo in uh, El Cajon, uh, Eric. Um, um, Earl McNeil here in, San, in the National City, uh, uh, Aliyah Jenkins, that we're not seeing the kind of um, justice uh, being uh, served for the, the killings of African Americans. It's not that dissimilar from what we were seeing 100, 110 years ago. So I'd love to get to know you a little better as the leader of um, the branch here in San Diego. You know, who is the man behind uh, what we see in the news and some of the uh, ways you represent the organization? I, I was reading your biography on the uh, local website. You grew up in L.A. Yes. Uh, it mentioned that it was in a very turbulent time. I'm curious, you know, now you're in San Diego, but what are some of the things as a young person growing up that shaped your worldview? Well, I was born in 1960, so I'm what they call a trailing edge boomer from one perspective, but I was uh, born in the 60s when the civil rights movement was coming to, in many ways, its head. Uh, I was in an urban area, unlike the South, where you saw certain kinds of things being taking place with respect to civil rights. But in the, in the urban areas, of course, we saw that this was a much more uh, militant uh, perspective. This The North and you know major cities in the West, like Los Angeles and San Diego and, and uh, Oakland, um, are, had a little different had different issues than we saw in the South, uh, and so I was in Los in Los Angeles when the Los Angeles riots took place, and you know I wasn't an adult, so I was a child. But needless to say, the family and the family members and uh, people in the community had conversations about these things that we were privy to, uh, and we we absorbed uh, much of the emotion that they were experiencing, and we learned a little bit about what was going on. My, my major was political science. In my minor was Africana Studies, what's that now called Africana Studies, then African American Studies. And so I studied many of these things as well. Um, I think the thing that shaped me most in terms of what happened to me in Los Angeles was that when my family moved into what was then southwestern Los Angeles, it was a predominantly white community. By the time I came to San Diego in 1978 to go to San Diego State University, it was considered part of South Central Los Angeles, the black community, quote unquote, the ghetto. Uh, so. Um, that's the perspective that I grew up with. You know, the the, the, the gang activity, um, certain degree of poverty. The thing that, that struck me most, that I remember most, was I could go out my back door, go through the back gate, cross the alley, and walk into my dentist office, and he was a black dentist, and he had black dental assistants. Uh, but as the neighborhood uh, character changed, he moved. Mm. Right? And so um, as my studies shared with me, and as I even look around San Diego and recognize that um, there was a black intelligentsia, one might say. You know, um, uh, W. B. Du Bois used the phrase "talented tenth." That was he th- thought would be held responsible for making sure that communities would thrive by staying in those communities, right, and sharing with them values and resources and intellectual information that would help those communities. Well, those that intellectual capital left the community by and large through integration. Uh, in many ways, shapes, forms, and fashions, and that really devastated a lot of communities in San Diego. When you know, when I got to San Diego, I thought, well, this is not too different. That there is a black community here in San Diego that is um, without 
close companionship to the intelligentsia uh, of, of a community, a black intelligentsia of a community that would help that community uh, thrive. So you came down to San Diego specifically for San Diego State University? Yes, ma'am. Aztecs. If it weren't for a bunch of folks at Los Angeles High School who were darn sure I was going to college, I had no intention, no consideration, no will or desire whatsoever to go to college. Uh, but they were determined that I would, and they sent the paperwork home with my mother and called my mother and told him that the, told her that the paperwork was coming, that she needed to complete. Now, my mother had a master's degree, so it wasn't on her. It was on me to make sure that things happened. And, of course, I wasn't going to tell her anything about it because I didn't want the pressure. Uh, but they made sure that information got to her, and we walked through the process and uh, through... Uh, uh, grants and loans and and a whole lot of prodding from folks at Los Angeles High School. I ended up at San Diego State University. It was either San Diego State, UCLA, or Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Now, UCLA was too close to home. <laughs> Literally, I could take one bus and get there. Yeah. Cal Poly was just out in the middle of no place I'd ever imagined before. I also got accepted to Boston College, uh, but now East Coast for a West Coast kid, no, <laughs> wasn't wasn't going to work for me. So San Diego State was far enough away yeah. so that my new mother wouldn't show up on my doorstep unannounced and close enough to where you know I could rent a car and be back home in two hours. So are you full on San Diego now, or do you still miss L.A.? I don't miss L.A. at all. <laughs> my little brother still lives in the house that we grew up in. Uh, oh, wow. He ended up with that after my mother passed, and um, actually before my mother passed because she moved to Hemet. Um, but, no, I'm a full I'm full on San Diego. I have four kids who were born and raised in San Diego, a stepson who was raised in San Diego. And uh, I've been here 40-plus years now, so this is my home. So as you mentioned, you studied political science and African-American studies. How did uh, studying that at San Diego State and uh, just those early days in San Diego kind of influence either what you went on to do or just kind of, again, how you shaped your worldview? They totally shaped my worldview. So, you know, coming from South Central Los Angeles into, into San Diego State University, I was just, you know, I wasn't a thug or anything like that or gangbanger, but I was a little ghetto kid. Uh, so I got to San Diego State University. I was I was good in math and good in science in high school. So they put me in an engineering into an engineering program, which I thought was fascinating. I was a Star Trek fan and wanted to be the <laughs> build the first warp engine. That would have been great, but the, the 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 academic rigor was way beyond my discipline at the time. So um, after a couple of years, I switched to political science. In the meantime, I became president of the Af- Black Student Union. I'm the only person in San Diego State history who was both president of the Black Student Union and the African Student Union. So in 1980, it was a black student union. I was the president. In 1981, they changed their name to African, African Student Union. In 1982, I was the president of the African Student Union. Wow. That politicized me, and that's how I changed sure. my, uh, you know, uh, first of all, a less rigorous program, but I changed my major to, Afri- to uh, political science and Africana studies as a minor uh, and studied in there and became quite engrossed. And um, ultimately, after, col- after flunking out of college in 1984, because I was doing everything on campus except going to going to class, um, I went back to Los Angeles, ran into an old sweetheart, got married. Ten years later, we had four kids. We got divorced, and I was very much interested in going back into that environment that I was so engaged in as a uh, as a Afri- as a black student, African Student Union president, mm-hmm. uh, and ended up taking some training for community organizing, especially faith based here in the Black community of San Diego, and um, kind of moved on, keep, kept moving from there. So with the history that you have and sort of um, your passion for community organizing and activism, what does it mean to you to be the leader now of a local branch? So let's let's back up a little bit. So one of the things that I learned in my training for community organizing is diffuse leadership. So, okay, so I wear a title of president. If you look in the bylaws, one of my responsibilities as president is to support the committees. Well, the committees are where the work is done. This is where the real work is done. So when we say leader, it's really more of an organizer, a coordinator. 
later. Um, you know, and a, a titular head, that's, that's why you have me now on the radio, right? Uh, somebody has to be that titular head. Uh, but really when we talk about leadership, we're really talking about how do we diffuse leadership into the community so that people are self-sufficient and self-determining in and among themselves so that they don't have to look at a single individual or even a single group of individuals. Uh, for leadership, the community is diverse uh, and the requirements of the community are diverse. We like to use the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. I'm challenging people to ask the question, what does it take to raise a village? What does an actual village look like? What are the components of a village? How is it empowered to do the things it has to do so that the next generation is empowered for self-sufficiency and self-determination, especially in an environment that is not always conducive to uh, supporting those children as they grow up? Uh, so when we say leadership, uh, we're really looking at how does a whole community organize itself so that it can do the things it needs to do to be successful and to thrive. Do you have particular issues or goals as, you know, you said it was just the titular leader, but for the organization as its leader or personal passions as someone involved with this organization? Well, I'm hoping that three things will happen uh, during the period of time that they give me this opportunity to serve as the president of the NAACP San Diego branch. One, there is an infrastructure of the branch. There are bylaws and there's a constitution that says this is how we actually run things. And I'm hoping that before my tenure is over, we will have put in place all the all the necessary components of that infrastructure so that the organization has the, at least the skeleton and the muscle uh, to be successful in doing what it's trying to do. Secondly, I'm hoping that we will, we will be able to show ourselves as an organization that is sufficiently integrated into the community so that the community feels empowered to utilize this organization and its structure to help meet its needs. One of the things that, that is not often talked about in San Diego's black community is there's really two black communities in San Diego. San Diego, according to SANDEC, has about 150,000 black people. About half of those people, they were born and raised here, their parents were born and raised here, maybe their grandparents were born and raised here as well. The other half are transplants from other cities. Now, there's there's the, the indigenous group of people tends to be working class because of the history of discrimination here in San Diego. The other group tends to be kind of elitist because if you have transferred from someplace else to San Diego, you have to bring resources, right? You have to be able to pay rent, pay mortgage. You have to be able to put gas in your car. So you're pretty much bringing some kind of resources with you. Now, the challenge is that these two communities have not always been well integrated with one another. So the empowerment of the black community means integrating these two black communities so that they work together to bring both the resources that one group has with the knowledge and information and understanding that the other group has of how this community has worked or not worked over uh, the last decade or two decades or three, actually about 40, 45, 50 years. Thirdly, um, what I am hoping to see happen is that with that infrastructure in place and with both black communities working together, that we will un help people understand what our lane is. Uh, the most famous thing I think that NAACP has done over time is Brown versus Board of Education. That can be credited to the NAACP. My fraternity brother, Thur Thurgood Marshall of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, I have to put that out there, um, uh, prosecuted that case successfully. That's maybe the best thing that the NAACP is known for. Uh, litigation is kind of our strong point. Uh, out of that actual litigation came the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So that's what we do well. We can do protests, we can do um, rallies, we can do these uh, marches, we can do these things. But there are actually other organizations I think that are better suited 
for doing that kind of work. The other thing that the NAACP has to recognize is that we tend to be comprised of older people. It's just the nature of the beast. The NAACP is 100 years old in San Diego. Other organizations like NAN, like People's Alliance for Justice, are much younger uh, um, pillars of the community. These are much younger organizations with much younger people in them who have a different perspective and a lot more energy than us older people are going to have. The third thing I'm hoping will happen was that with the infrastructure uh, and the energy of the NAACP being solidified, that we will help uh, the, all, ourselves and all these other organizations figure out whose lane is what, get everybody in their lane and all work together. So just in looking at your recent activity here in San Diego, some examples that at least we have in the San Diego Union Tribune that you know people can go read in, um, just where we've seen recently some uh, strong uh, voice from the NAACP is the Lincoln High School football game uh, where the students faced racial taunting. Uh, there was the issue of the inmate buses taking young children of color to a summer camp. How do you decide what to get involved with and why? Well, again, it starts with how we are organized and what we can and cannot do. We are we, have a, we are part of a national organization that gives us certain parameters within which we can function. Uh, however, our executive committee, especially our first vice president, Ms. Francine Maxwell, is extremely well integrated into the black community of San Diego. Uh, and so just about anything that happens in the black community, uh, she gets a phone call or an email or a text message. And so we're very well tied in and tapped into what's going on. Uh, and, and by and large, so I'm from Los Angeles. Francine's from here. Um, uh, our second vice, vice president is Ms. Genevieve, Genevieve Jones-Wright. She's from San Diego. Our Religious Affairs Committee chairperson is, uh, Cornelia, is Bishop Cornelius Bowser. He's from San Diego. Uh, if we go around the table, there are a number of other folks who are either from San Diego or have been in San Diego longer than I've been in San Diego. So we listen to what they have to say. That's what the community, communities exist for. But that's also why we have the infrastructure, again, the vice presidents, who are so well integrated into the community. So how do we select what to respond to? We, we listen to the community. The community tells us where they want us to go and what they want us to do. And um, if it falls within what our, we're structured to do, that's what we do. Now, sometimes we might actually step a little bit outside of what uh, we're structured to do. Uh, and that does have its consequences. But we're here to serve this community. Uh, sometimes the state and national office are not quite tied in and tuned into what's going on in San Diego. Um, Sacramento's a long way away. And uh, Baltimore's a long way away. And so every now and then we might do something that, that tweaks uh, the national or state organization a little bit, and we deal with the consequences of that. But we're here to serve this community. Like what? Like I said, we don't do too much talk about it because it, it was highly controversial. We've, we've tried to mitigate the uh, fallout, uh, but um, to, to rehash a little bit of, of what did occur is that there, there's a resolution process. And we offered a resolution. We asked the national organization if they would consider a resolution um, eliminating. So currently, the, the national organization, National NAACP, has a has has a a policy that requests a moratorium on the expansion of of uh, charter schools. And we simply sent a resolution to the national office saying we'd like you to change that. Uh, it it we were not the only branch that suggested that that passed a resolution uh, making that recommendation. Uh, and so the, the national office and the state office were, because our state president is actually on the national board, so they were, they were, they were uncomfortable with that, and they requested that we uh, undo that. Uh, and there, we went through the process of voting that they were required by the national office to do to make that, pro- that uh, resolution, and the organization, the San Diego branch of the NAACP, opted not to undo it. Why is that an important issue to the local branch? 
Well, if we look at the statistics, right, the, and, and I'll, I'll, let, me, let me just round it out this way. As, as I've had conversations on both sides of this issue with folks who are on both sides of the issue, and they've not always been comfortable conversations, my bottom line was, let's look at the education of African-American children. Let's see who's doing a good job of educating African-American children. Now, the San Diego Unified School District is not doing a good job of educating African-American students. Mm. Even though they got something uh, recently that they're, oh, wow, they've made such improvement. Yeah, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, if you're at 1 and you get to 2, that doesn't mean you've gone, done a whole lot of good. Uh, even if it's 100% improvement, if you're that far behind, uh, you need to do more. So we have not seen the public school system in San Diego do an effective and efficient job of educating African-American students. And my disposition is that's what I want to see. I don't care if you're a public school or a charter school or a private school or a home school. The question we're asking is outcomes. So I'm asking uh, whether it's the school district or the teachers union or the, the, um, the um, charter school association, whoever is doing the education, I want to see the, your numbers. I want to see the, the evidence that you're actually doing a good job of educating African-American students. Now, I take it a step further because my last time I looked, I think the United States ranked 16th out of 32 industrialized countries in terms of education, and that California ranks typically 48th or 49th or 50th in terms of education, period, in the United States of America. So looking at the quality of education that California is giving students and the quality of education that the United States is giving students, I'm not satisfied with that. We have a global economy. We have a global uh, uh, society. And if you're going to educate African-American children, you need to educate them, one, in a way that gives them the capacity to compete, as it were, uh, on a global scale. But two, you might want to change the perspective through which you actually educate them. And that's a whole other conversation because I, I advocate for something other than what we call colonial education. This may be getting into the news of the lawsuit that uh, was recently filed by the um, local branch, uh, but I wonder if there are other areas you would uh, say that San Diego as a city or San Diego Unified uh, as educators what are the ways in which this county and this city are failing uh, the black community, especially the youth? Well, the, the lawsuit you may be referring to has to do with the Housing Commission. Yeah, so and housing the, being one area, but are there... Yeah. What are well, the areas? Because you said education for Education, youth. housing, uh, and we talked about criminal justice as well, that we see uh, profiling still going on. That's been demonstrated by San Diego State University. We have the, uh, the, the CAB, the Community Advisory Board, on police practices that has made a set of recommendations that have been ignored. We have the CLRB, which allowed 22, uh, sorry, 22 deaths in custody in the Sheriff's Department to go unaddressed. And we have the CRB, uh, which uh, is a paper tiger, and we're trying to work with the organizations, uh, Women Occupy and the others who have preferred uh, a process whereby that, that organization will have more teeth. So we see criminal justice as a critical issue uh, in San Diego. Uh, we, we, we recently met with uh, com uh, city and county officials on what's going on in the jail system. Um, the jails are in bad shape, and there is a lot of activity going on that could be mitigated by some changes in policies in the jail system. Um, we've seen, again, some of the people we've mentioned, like Aaliyah Jenkins and, and uh, others here in San Diego County who have suffered substantially from uh, the lack of transparency, the lack of training, um, and what we may dare say is just racism in the uh, police departments around San Diego County. There was, there was an incident in La Jolla where a white man went into a pool party and shot a bunch of black people. Now, there were white people at the party, too, but he shot the black people. And then um, um, Police Chief Shelley Zimmerman jumped up and said this was not race-related. 
before any investigation had taken place, right? So those kinds of things give us pause, right, in terms of trusting these agencies that we see also uh, regularly um, doing things that we, we find uh, offensive. Uh, so again, the education system, as I've said, we, we, have, we are engaged intensely at uh, Porter Elementary School, working with them to develop their PTA. We've uh, working with them with their site council. Uh, and we've been rebuffed on occasion when trying to work with the school system uh, to help our African-American students and all students in the school system uh, improve. We're just there to help, and we've offered our assistance, and we're not always received uh, comfortably. Uh, you know, we could talk about everything uh, when we talk about uh, black folks. Black folks die faster and, and younger and harder from just about everything. And it's all rooted in a racial caste system that was created in this country over 400, over 400 years ago, quite frankly. But 400 years ago, it was codified in Africans being brought here and made into slaves. That slave system was transformed into a Jim Crow system that, only, that hasn't died, but was only transformed significantly uh, since my birth. Uh, and so the remnants of those system, those, that system is still here. The slave system, the Jim Crow system is still here. And our concern is just to begin to address or continue to address those issues as they are. I mean, we're 100 years old and still having these same and similar conversations. So on the topic of housing, the San Diego branch recently filed a lawsuit against the San Diego Housing Commission. It says that the housing vouchers are used to segregate neighborhoods in the city. Can you tell us more about that? Well, what we can see, uh, so we have the city of San Diego, the Housing Commission, which was given an opportunity by HUD to change the way it does vouchers. Uh, San Diego is one of a number of cities, cities that was identified as being overly segregated. Uh, there is a book out now, because we're moving into a new thing now, there's a book out called uh, The Color of Law, where uh, the gentleman who wrote the book identifies that zoning has been very, very instrumental by the government, deliberately racially zoning, uh, I should say, zoning is a remnant of the racial caste system and redlining that was done by the federal government and local government uh, over the last century or so. And um, so we have segregated communities already created by the government. Then we have HUD comes along to, with a housing voucher for Section 8 and says, San Diego, you, you got a problem. Maybe you, we, here's some opportunities for you to change change things. And they gave them an opportunity to change the way they do the voucher system so it would be more equitable throughout the entire city of San Diego. They rejected that because they had an opportunity. They were given a waiver of sorts to um, do something a little bit different. And so they did. They only have three tiers, three different levels of um, vouchers. Now, what we've learned through that looking at those vouchers and from a deep statistical analysis is that if you want to live in a an Africa in a, a community of color or a poor community that that voucher will cover a significantly larger percentage of your rent that if you want to live in a more opportunity more opportune community that is predominantly white and since we know that these uh, are remnants of the uh, segregation and redlining systems that were already put in place, it is not difficult to see that if these adjustments were made by the Housing Commission, that people of color and poor people would be able to move into communities that have greater opportunity. And it's been demonstrated that when people move into communities of greater opportunity, they take advantage of those and they do better. It's not that the communities come down, it's that the people come up. But the way the city is doing their vouchers makes it much more difficult for you move, to move into a predominantly white a community of opportunity uh, because they pay a larger percentage of the rent in the poorer communities, communities of color. So that's just one recent example of many that um, where the NAACP has been involved here, local uh, how do you? How would you describe how it has remained so uh, so relevant for a hundred years? Because uh, 
America has been racist for at least that hundred years, right? Four hundred years, remember? Uh, so why we have talked about at some point we come to an egalitarian society where people don't look at color. Uh, uh, Bob Marley wrote a song, or actually took the words of uh, Haile Selassie and wrote a song where he said, one day the color of a man's skin will be of no more significance than the color of his eyes. Right? One day that society may exist. Until that's the case, um, if this is America as it claims to be and that all humans are created equal, even though we see the sexism in the way that was written, right? all men are created equal and endowed by a creator but certain unalienable rights, a bunch of them, among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we are going to live out that, perspective, that uh, philosophy, then we have work to do, right? When the Constitution of the United States of America was signed in 1879, 1877, that, um, <laughs> Africans were three-fifths of a person for census purposes, and no women or Africans or Native Americans were citizens. Uh, so we, 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 we have a long way, we've come a long way, but we have a long way to go before we get there. Why is the NAACP still relevant? Because the problems that we were created to address are still still exist with us. They may be less in your face, they may be less um, um, prevalent, right? Because now I can, I can walk downtown and eat in any place that's downtown, I can, you know, Take a get, a get a room in any hotel, all that kind of stuff. Those are nice superficial things, but the the fundamental problems that San Diego and California and the United States face in terms of race have not changed that much. Uh, and until we get to that place where people don't see the color of the skin any more than they see the color of the eyes, then uh, we'll continue to be relevant and have to address these issues. That's that's what this country says it's all about. We're just a part of it. Last question for you is, you've done so much to work for change in San Diego, and I wonder, for you personally, how has this work changed you? Well, <laughs> that's a tough question. Um, I, How has that work changed me? It's done two things. One, I think um, it has helped me really understand and appreciate um, being a human being that with all the work there is to do, that you have to have time to laugh and live in love. You have to take time for that, no matter what's going on. You know, I've got you know, friends who die from heart attacks. Uh, my son just got out of jail. He's been there a couple of times. I got you know, folks I know who've been shot and folks going to jail, prison and all that kind of stuff's going on. But you still gotta live, love, and, and laugh through, throughout whatever is going on. Um, that's, you know, we talk about, again, the Constitution, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. you got to do that no matter what's going on. Why? Because those things are going to happen, right? Syria's going to happen. Afghanistan's going to happen. Um, you know, immigration across the border is going to happen. Things are going to happen. Uh, you can't stop living life, uh, even while you're doing this very difficult work of trying to make the world a better place. Uh, the other thing that is, is demonstrated for me is the, um, and I get emotional, is the um, indomitability of the human spirit. You know, black folks have been in America for 400 years under the most cruel oppression you know, anyone can imagine. There's nothing in history as horrific as what we've been through over the last 400 years. And yet, as Maya Angelou said, and still we rise. We still get up in the morning, and we still do plans, and we still do reports, and we still do interviews, and we still do the work of trying to make a better community for ourselves and for our children. And it's worth it. You know, it's hard. It's very hard. But we keep at it because it's worth it. Like I said, we had a Generation Z coming, and we want to see them grow and thrive. Um, and so we keep doing the work no matter what.
we keep doing the work no matter what. I've seen people in this community who've been beaten down and just horribly uh, oppressed and gone through hell, and they still get up every morning saying, we're going to do this thing and we're going to make it better. It's, it's just awesome. I love my people. They're, cra- they're incredible. Clovis Honoré is the president of the NAACP San Diego branch, which just turned 100. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. It's been a blessing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Conversation with Abby Hamblin. It's part of the San Diego Union Tribune's podcast network. We have some big news coming up about the next era of this podcast, and we hope that you'll stay tuned with us and you will find our announcements on social media. So check us out on Twitter at SDUT Ideas. Check us out on Facebook at UT Opinion and on Instagram at SDUT Ideas. Please find all our podcasts at sandiegouniontribune.com slash podcasts.